Does your child have complex medical conditions or special health needs, but you're still struggling to find effective care? Are you worried about giving your child multiple prescription drugs? Or maybe you need help determining the root cause of your child's condition. On this episode of Brainy Moms, Terry and I interview functional medicine physician, Dr. Aaron Hartman. Dr. Hartman shares how lifestyle interventions, things we can do at home, might be the answer you're looking for. Tune in to hear how his own child overcame serious illness and how your child might benefit from this approach as well. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Brainy Moms. I'm Dr. Amy Moore, here with my co-host, Terry Miller, coming to you today from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We are excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Aaron Hartman. Dr. Hartman is a functional medicine physician who is a go-to doctor for difficult and complex medical cases, including kids with special needs. He's also a clinical researcher involved in over 60 studies. He's the founder of the Virginia Research Center and Richmond Integrative and Functional Medicine, and is an assistant clinical professor of family medicine at the VCU School of Medicine. He's with us today to talk about the work it takes to help children with special medical needs, the issues with our traditional healthcare system and how to navigate it, but most importantly, he became an expert in this area because of his own child's experience with chronic illness and health struggles. Listeners, he's got skin in the game. Yep. <laughs> so glad to have you here with us, Dr. Hartman. Well, Terry, it's great to be with you and Amy. I'm really excited to share some of our, our my story. All right. Well, that's where we want to begin. If you would just tell our listeners a little bit about your story and um, your daughter's story, your experiences that brought you to where you are today with functional medicine as your passion and how you see it as a solution. Yeah, well, um, we, my wife is a pediatric occupational therapist whose specialty is kids with special needs. And so we'd been married for about two years. And one of the um, little girls that she was working with her home was disappearing. And she was like, Hey, would you want to consider you know, fostering her, bring her in home? And we, we did that ended up adopting Anna, who's my, my first daughter. And um, in the process of the transition between fostering and adoption, there was a thing where the uh, pediatric GI specialist wanted to put a feeding tube into her because she was, you know, kids with special needs tend to have feeding issues, tend to be small. And so the thinking was you put a tube in, you can pour formula in, kid gains weight, problem solved, move on, right? And so just talking with my wife, learning about how feeding affects speech development, motor development, how a lot of the tech kids, a lot of the issues kids have with textures are, are based on interactions they have with food from, from the beginning. Um, speech, talking, um, a tube would actually affect how she learns to walk and crawl. You have a tube in, it's really hard for a kid to even try to crawl. So we opted out of that. And about six months later, my wife actually found a um, growth chart for kids with special needs and my, particularly cerebral palsy. And my dog was right in the middle. And that was like the first time I had this aha moment that the specialist in this field at the University of Florida, who this is their jam, this is what they do, did not know my daughter was normal for her, for her medical condition, had no idea this chart existed. And it took my wife as a dedicated mom of a kid with special need to research this. And, and that was also one of the first times um, you know, face to face, I met the power of a mom of a kid with special needs. They are, they are forced to be reckoned with. And I've seen that over and over and over again, you know, um, with her and with other parents of kids with special needs, you know, they're a force, you know, and, um, and that was the first time I kind of went off the path. You know, the second time was about a year too late where another specialist and eye doctor said, we should do eye surgery on your daughter, her eyes, she has strabismus and her eyes were, um, irregular in the movement. And they're like, let's cut this here, cut that there. And it'll make her cosmetically look better. And again, that, that point in time, my first thing was to question. 
got a second consultation with another ophthalmologist and they said, it's cosmetic. You can just patch and work on the optic nerve development. And so after that, it was like, I just have learned to question everything, you know? Um, and so that just over time led down to changing diet, looking at epigenetics, looking at our SNPs or genes, looking at metabolomics, eventually getting into um, functional neurology, doing peptide therapy, lipid therapy. Um, it's led just into many, many um, pathways. And as a clinical researcher, medical doctor, I wanted to, you know, take deep dives. So eventually got board certification and in integrative holistic medicine, certification, in functional medicine. And I'm getting ready to sit for my third board, which is an anti-aging and regenerative medicine. And a couple of weeks I'm sitting for that. So it just kind of led me down this pathway to keep on learning initially because of my daughter and my family um, and other health issues, but ultimately it's bled into my care of patients. I think it's super interesting. I found on your website, you're kind of about me, your medical history, that at one time you worked for Pfizer, that you, I think a lot of listeners hear, oh, functional medicine. Oh, that's that hoodoo guru kind of, you know, feely medical stuff. That's not real medical. And I love that you have a history of very, very medical. What our listeners would be like, what? He worked for Pfizer and now he's functional medicine. So that's, that's a really cool juxtaposition that I think is important. Well, I think one thing people forget is that by the time something becomes standard of care, it's been in the literature probably for decades, you know, and so things start with basic bench research, looking at how things actually work. Then it gets to the point of experimenting on animals. And then eventually we say, Hey, can this be turned into a drug for humans? That can be decades. Sometimes. I mean, people don't realize how long it takes for bench research to make it into the real world. And if you're familiar with Terry Walls story, you know, with multiple sclerosis and everything, she went Dr. Walls, everything she went through, she kind of did something similar to herself where she researched the multiple sclerosis world, what nutrients are associated with it and start with supplementation. Her journey was she eventually figured out, actually, let me eat the foods that are nutrient dense in these things. And that was kind of part of her story, but it gets same kind of thing. That's what functional medicine doctors do. We go back to literature, to the research. And just because it's not a pharmaceutical medication or a, a or a trial, a drug trial for clinical research and medicine doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just means no one's invested the money to patent a medication. And there's so many things, curcumin, turmeric, probiotics. There's a lot of research that just was published with COVID looking at bifidobacter and how the, the differentiation of bifidobacter, which is a bacteria in your GI tract can affect the severity of COVID. Probably one of the reasons why kids have less severe COVID than, than the older people. And so like this information's out there, it's just, it takes decades to actually make it to the, the medical consciousness and in functional medicine, we're at the tip of the spear. We're taking care of people. We're in the trenches. We don't have time to wait for committees to say, you know, you can do this now. And that's kind of, and when you have a drive of, of your child or a personal health story, which a lot of people have, it, it just it lights a fire on you and, and accelerates your learning process. So I want to back up just a little bit for our listeners who might not be familiar with what functional medicine is. Can you talk a little bit about that and what makes it different from traditional medicine? Sure. Okay. There's many ways you can use different words to describe functional medicine. Sometimes people will use the word personalized medicine, biological medicine, um, integrative medicine is not quite the same, but the, the general concept is going to the root cause, you know, not just looking at symptoms, but looking at the actual root cause. The way, the way I like to think about it, it's a tree, you know, the leaves on the tree might be your, your, your aches and your pains and your cholesterol and your sugar issues, but the root cause, the roots, what actually gets to those leaves. And so functional medicine looks at your entire story where you're born, your, your health history, family history, your triggers in your life, nutritional status, environmental. I've become like almost like a building biology environmental specialist because you have to look at how the environment affects your health. 
And then looking at the person all the way up to the moment you see them, what, what is affecting you now? And so the difference between functional medicine and, and, and conventional medicine is that very looking to the root cause. And the reality is it's going to be different for every person. And that's one of the reasons why this is also called, you know, Dr. Bland calls this personalized medicine because you're literally figuring out that individual, not a population of thousands of people. Right. So it's, it's a much more holistic approach. It's a much more whole life approach than just like that leaf, someone coming and saying, I'm having headaches all the time. Okay. Well, here's your ibuprofen. That headache's going to go away. It's so it's a more whole life. Why are you having headaches all the time? Correct. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you can be having headaches because you have sleep apnea. You can have headaches because you have a B6 and B vitamin deficiencies or magnesium deficiency. You can be have headaches because um, there's mold in your house. You know, you can have headaches for a massive amount of different reasons. Why do you as an individual have your headaches? And for me, actually with my migraines, gluten was a big trigger for me. And I kind of took me a couple of years to figure it out, but I figured out if I remove gluten from my diet, I don't have migraines anymore. Yeah. Yeah. A little example of this, um, that just happened. I was on the phone with the doctor's office yesterday for my youngest daughter. Um, she's got digestive issues and she vacillates back and forth. She's just nine vacillates back and forth between severe constipation and then days of diarrhea. And so, you know, had her, you know, kind of well-checked doctor's office and dealing with those concerns. And then their, their, um, you know, referral, the next appointment they were sending us to, I got the call and they were like, yeah, we've got your referral and, you know, ready for her to go see the gastroenterologist. And I was like, no, 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 no. We've been down that road. All they wanted to do was give her a prescription for something that just makes her poop. No, I want to find the root cause. And so how about let's get an allergist. Let's find out what food allergies, what environmental allergies she has. And I had to kind of fight um, the system and say, no, we're not, we're not going to just go that route of, yeah, like that leaf, you know, take an ibuprofen. She's not just going to take something to deal with the problems. We're going to find out what's the cause. The thing about when you deal with a, a kid with, and it sounds like, you know, IBS mixed, which goes back between constipation and diarrhea. We now know from the literature, and this is published literature that that can be in some people, a, um, a prerequisite for different autoimmune diseases in adulthood. And so getting at that when a kid is four five, six can literally alter their health trajectory and the positive momentum instead of waiting for a official diagnosis for which now we have these medications. And it's really interesting. You know, there's a whole field of medicine called what it's now called predictive autoimmunity and like, you know, autoantibodies will pop up 10 and 20 years before the diagnosis. So if you have a positive thyroid antibody, that'll be positive eight or 10 years before diagnosis or positive ANA can be positive 20 years before the diagnosis of lupus. So it's like, really? Yeah. And then if you, if you find that maybe I can change the trajectory. Right. And so that's, we just don't really think that way because that type of personalized medicine is really hard to fit in these you know, quote unquote, evidence-based protocol, because they're basically protocols, right? Things you can have millions of people across millions of practitioners across the country actually institute this kind of personalized medicine requires a one-to-one interaction, knowing you, knowing your daughter's history, et cetera. And that's, um, you can't institutionalize that it has to be individually individual. So, right. Yeah. And it's going to take more than that quick 15 minute in and out appointment. Absolutely. So. Yeah. All right. So Um, Your daughter had a complex medical case that responded to a functional medicine approach. Talk to us a little bit about um, what are some other examples of complex medical conditions that 
we're seeing in society right now, what, what parents are dealing with and what would be a good fit for functional medicine? Well, I mean, I think right now we're seeing in, in kids, we're seeing lots of neurological issues. So whether it's something as, as quote unquote mild as sensory issues, texture issues, feeding issues in kids to um, learning issues, learning, you know, whether it's um, dyslexia to the, the more severe versions of um, autism or even panas or pans, which is this infection induced um, OCD kind of thing. We're seeing more and more and more of those. Um, why is that? Well, these ultimately it's interesting how the gut, the gut bacteria and triggering events are actually at the basis of a lot of these issues. And we're learning how food, you know, the bacteria in your gut has a big impact on the gut microbiome. We're learning about how the gut bacteria can actually program neural development, neural integration and myelination in your brain which is interesting because like with autism, for example, usually the kids developing normally until an incident happens and they kind of go off the path of realizing that actually the bacteria in the gut actually kind of set up that resilience or that, that, um, that tendency towards this, this abnormality. And so it's interesting how the research in other places in the world are using stool transplants, HTC, which is a kind of parasite, um, probiotics, antimicrobials for this very thing. And so in the neuro in the neurology world, kids with these learning issues or behavior issues, their gut is a big part of that. And that's where diet becomes, that's where we started. It was, we started with food with my dog. It's where we started. And that's one of those things people come to see me and they want all the cool new gadgets and the cool new things and blue lipped muzzle extract from the South Pacific picked in the first full moon or whatever, you know, and they want this crazy stuff. It's like, Diet, diet, diet becomes your foundation, you know, and that's where I think with kids, there's a plethora of literature on fatty acid deficiencies in these kids, um, essential omega threes and omega sixes. There's actually an FDA approved drug called Bayerin. It's a fish oil extract that's approved to treat ADHD. You know, all my patients are coming with ADHD or, or anxiety or issues. They get a fatty acid analysis and they're always off. And I'm seeing so many kids with low essential fatty acids, cholesterol, phospholipids. And so all of a sudden now your diet, the fats are important parts of your neurological development. So that's just one small snippet of things I'm seeing and how diet and the kinds of diets with the particular kids can be super important for actually changing their health trajectory. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so my middle son um, was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome when he was in kindergarten and um at age 12, um, was diagnosed with celiac. I, I also have celiac disease. Well, something magical seemed to happen when we removed gluten from his diet, his ticks went away. And so the neurological manifestations of celiac were actually what we were seeing, not actually Tourette syndrome. I've had, I've had patients with seizure disorders that have the exact same thing. There's a thing called, um, gluten induced cerebellar ataxia big fancy words. So it means the gluten enact, makes your body make an antibody that attacks your, your cerebellum, which is your balance part of your brain. So these kids eat gluten and get off balance. They get kind of clumsy and bounce in the walls and have behavior issues. Your cerebellum also plans behavior. So they have erratic behavior and that there's literature that can be solely induced by just, eat, it's not celiac, which is an extreme. It's just simply eating gluten. And it's, and it's funny how many people forget that autoimmune diseases are all systemic. We define the autoimmune disease based on the primary system involved, celiac with the gut, you know, um, inflammatory bowel with the gut, um, the joints with rheumatoid, but actually all autoimmune diseases by definition are systemic. And so you can have a wide range of presentations and I'm seeing more and more kids with seizure issues 
behavior issues that's actually end up being undiagnosed um, celiac disease. That is, Amy, actually very, it's commonly overlooked. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, the literature on schizophrenia and and celiac and what happens when you put schizophrenia patients on a gluten-free diet, some of them are medication free after that because they're symptom free after that. It's incredible. Yeah. It was, there's, they, this is the kind of things we can't do anymore in America these days. But in the 1960s, there was like a study that in a, in a, in a, in a psychiatric hospital where they had forced gluten-free diets on their psychiatric patients and they saw massive improvements in those patients. And it's like, why isn't that not one of the first things the psychiatrist talks about looking at mold, um, looking at a whole host of things with patients who have brain-based and I, when I see schizophrenia or in these things, I think brain-based inflammation. And I think well, where are 90% of your neurotransmitters, your serotonin made, where's half of your dopamine made your gut. In the gut. Yeah. So, so all of a sudden now I have leverage points to start investigating. Let's do a gut analysis. Let's do a stool analysis. Let's do auto antibodies looking for, you know, gluten, gliad, and a whole host of different antibodies. And then once we get those markers, let's do, inter- let's do therapies and then watch these normalize or improve. And that's what, that's how this kind of medicine is super, super personalized because this is the way we practice. Absolutely. So as a psychologist, I see, um, a lot of teenagers with anxiety and that's one of the first questions I ask them, talk to me about your diet. Yeah. Right. And it, of course it's 90% sugar, yeah. 90% gluten. <laughs> talk to us a little bit about sugar. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Where do I start? Um, right. oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Talk to us about sugar. Um, well, since we're talking about the gut, I can just start there. You know, sugar feeds yeast in your GI tract. So for example, if you're a female with estrogen excess with fibroids, PCOS, that can be driven solely by feeding yeast candida, which drop, which causes estrogen dominance. Sugar also causes vascular inflammation. There's a direct correlation with sugar consumption and later on neurological issues like Alzheimer's. The other thing about it is eating new, um, caloric dense foods, the most of which is just pure sugar without the nutritional elements, your body needs to process those. You can actually induce nutrient deficiencies. So for just, just eating plain wheat, plain processed grains, you know, hot fructose corn syrup, those put a large nutrient demand on your body. And by definition, if you're eating those things, you're not eating nutrient dense foods. You can actually induce B vitamin, magnesium, potassium, other mineral deficiencies just by eating sugar. And then there's all the stuff about how sugar changes your microbiome. It feeds different bacteria in your gut. And now we're learning about how important your gut health is for absolutely everything, you know, um, neurological health, cardiovascular health. We now know there's a gut, a gut brain access, a gut heart access There's a heart brain and a heart brain gut access. You know, we're learning about how important gut health is and eating sugar just doesn't really work in that. And then the whole thing with, um, with fatty liver, you know, 30% of Americans supposedly now have you know, fatty liver, 10% of the world's population has fatty liver, which is supposed to be the, the most common cause for liver transplant in the next five years or so oh eating sugar basically causes the release of endotoxins, which are the coats of bacteria in your GI tract. It goes to your liver and then your liver has to figure out how to process that when you're eating every four to six hours, you're always giving your liver a huge load. So ele- elevated liver enzymes, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, carb, sugar, these kind of things can drive that whole process. So let's break this down a little bit for parents. What happens when their child eats sugar? Okay. So sugar, oh my gosh. Yeah. So initially what happens is they eat sugar and their blood glucose levels go up. And so what, what happens is the kid gets this kind of euphoric kind of state. 
um, there's a concomitant increase in insulin because your body has to kind of balance this. So as the insulin overshoots it, because the sugar load is usually pretty significant, you'll then have a drop in the um, blood sugar level. So that's when the, you start having this, like this withdrawal, kind of feel kind of cruddy kind of feeling. And then your body responds by bumping up cortisol to get the sugar back up. And then also you release more norepinephrine. So you almost get this, this sympathetic activation and you see erratic behavior. You can see um, you know, three hours or so. Initially you see like a euphoria, feel great. It's like this euphoric, um, almost like morphine kind of reaction. And then a couple hours later, you'll see the crash. It's like the whole hangry thing where the kids get irritable. And it's really interesting. If you look at the, the, the symptomatology three or four hours after eating that, you look at irritability, mood swings, easily agitated, easily startled. Um, these are very similar symptoms of a, of a drug withdrawal. And it's really interesting kind of going into this whole gut microbiome thing. When you eat, you know, particularly um, gluten and um, milk or casein, the bacteria will make these things called pseudo neurotransmitters. The things that actually drive behavior to make you feed the bacteria more. And so two of these chemicals are glutamorphone and caseomorphone. And when you pull those things away or stop eating these sugars and carbs, the kids will actually have a withdrawal phenomenon. And the only way to really break that is not to eat the foods for two to three weeks for your body to adjust to it. So it's really a lot of the kids' behaviors you were kind of mentioning before can simply be these fluctuations in these, these hormones, neurotransmitters that are driven primarily by diet without the appropriate protein, nutrition, fats that actually help regulate your, your blood sugar levels. And then what is sugar's long-term contribution to health issues in children? Like, I mean, well, long, I mean, I think by definition, long-term kids, um, for kids, so because um, we think adults more like the cardiovascular stuff, it's going to be more like behavior, but also learning issues. You know, um, while the, the the issue with kids is while their brain's developing, if you have these these mood irregularities, mood swings, inability for self control, you won't fully de- develop the part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is where your 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 attention, your ability to self control sits. So you can actually make these kids that have a predisposition towards focusing, you can make that a lot worse. And so what happens is later on in teenage life, they require medication to help them focus. And it's interesting, the medications like Adderall and the stimulants are actually activating the very part of your brain that's not fully developed, which is that prefrontal cortex. It's like the part of your brain, it's like right above your eyeball, eye sockets in your head. Um, and so those are just a couple of behavior things that can, that can linger into teenage life, depending on what, what's done for the child. Right. So let's be, let's get practical. Um, I'm going to be real specific. I'm going to use my kid as an example. We so often do this. Um, we tell our own stories and um, our poor kids. I hope they don't ever <laughs> go back and listen to these. Listen. <laughs> I know. Um, so my youngest is nine. Um, she's adopted. She joined our family um, just after she turned four. She has a diagnosis of FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, Um She was profoundly malnourished when she joined our family, elevated um, A1C. Am I saying that right? I'm going A1C, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, That The doctor talked about she looked like uh, she was turning into type 2 diabetes as a four-year-old, like that her, I guess her blood work, her her function, um, type 2 diabetes as a four-year-old. I mean, that's just, it was heartbreaking. So obviously we've done tons of inter- interventions. She's had lots of therapies and, um, you know, diet changes and all these things. However, here she is nine years old. She's clearly, um, psychologically, psychologically delayed. 
developmentally delayed, um, uh, some cognitive issues, struggles in school. She's a great reader, but has significant math problems and logic and reasoning and slow processing, <clears throat> temper tantrums, you know, behavioral issues, all these things. Well, because of her situation in our family, she is um, insurance covered by a regular medical doctor, which is wonderful. I'm not going to bash a regular medical doctor that has had doctors and services have had wonderful impact in her life. However, so here we are, we're looking at all these issues. She has major food problems, food addictions. She struggled with hoarding and stealing food when she was first with us, obviously because she had been so deprived for so long. So as a parent, I'm not saying there's going to be a lot of kids out there with issues this severe, but maybe bits and pieces of it. What do we do? How do we step out of or add a functional medicine perspective to help our kids when generally we're getting in to see the doctor and they've got quick 15 minutes. Yeah. They just want to give them ibuprofen or some drug to make them poop or whatever. What do we do? I mean, Terry, our other daughter, you're actually describing her to a T, except we got her when she was two years old, not four years old. And it was really interesting to see a lot of the facial features change as we changed her diet. And so you have to realize there's still hope. The kid's brain still can develop, but yes, there are, there are the reading. You, they, the kids can read well, but they have math issues. They, they have problems like, you know, doing more than a one or two step process. You give them something with five steps and they can't quite do that. So you kind of have to guide them. And that's yep. where I think we're the integrative aspect in functional medicine using other modalities. You know, I found out with our one daughter actually rebounding, if you know what that is, it's basically a little trampoline that she bounces on, gives her a lot of neural input. And so some of these kids, because of the trauma, whether it's birth trauma, separation trauma, I mean, all these kids have any kid that's adopted has a certain, I mean, we all have trauma. I mean, the reality is we all have some kind of issues, you know, and it's interesting how the food part plays into that, where food hoarding actually is a, it is in many ways, a trauma response. Um, anybody who's had issues will, will think it's a security thing. Having food with you gives you this, this, um, subconscious level of security. Security. Uh -oh. So the idea is to calm the neurological system down. That's where physical stimulation, you know, rebounding can be helpful. There's other things like a polyneur, which is a peripheral stimulation device, um, nearby feedback. You know, there's a whole lot of things. The, the idea is to help the brain calm it. You do do the function, the traditional functional medicine stuff, diet, nutritional evaluation, doing fatty acid analysis and all those cool things. But there's also from the functional neurology world, which I have a foot in that as well, where you look at how can I calm your neurological system down? And there's a whole lot of really interesting devices to help with that. And rebounding is one that anybody can afford that little trampoline. And it's amazing. And the $1, she'll be out, she'll bounce. And I think for 20, 30 minutes, come in, she's happy as a lark. And it's almost like she knows she needs this kind of um, calming thing. And now at the current day, she's a teenager. Now she knows I'm going to go out and bounce for you know, 20, 30 minutes. Um, but it's really interesting how physical activity also helps regulate your brain function. So a lot of these kids getting into some kind of physical, whether it's a sport, whether it's um, some kind of hobby, something that, that they can get into, they can learn to focus on something. And a lot of times for some kids, it's actually reading some kids. I, I saw a kid the other day. It was actually, he has a lot of focusing issues, but he loves chess. Imagine a kid with ADHD and focusing issues who can't stay in a seat. They can sit for three hours and play a chess game. Wow. So sometimes it's like the parent becoming the detective and finding out for that kid, what's the thing they can do and then helping them develop that skill for brain regulation and what other physical activation things, sometimes body work massage can be really helpful. Um, and I'm all the star for a while I was doing 
massages on her to loosen her up to help her sleep. And actually she had sleeping issues. And it's interesting how just a little, little massage the night before she went to bed calmed her brain enough that she'd sleep really well. So sometimes it requires you as a parent realizing you know, not to minimize diet, exercise, and all these things, but also other other things you can do with your child. And the, the reality is the parents, they have to be their own um, sleuth to a certain degree. You know, as a functional medicine doctor, what I tell people all the time is like, I don't figure anything out. You tell me what's going on, whether it's by your story, your history, whether it's by your lab results, think testing, you, either your body or you are telling me what I just interpret what you tell me. And that's where the parents are huge because they become the primary gather of information and the purveyor of the story. Yeah. So you so mentioned helpful. sleep. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that a little bit because that's one of the pillars of functional medicine as well. Right. So yes. talk about sleep. Sleep is super critical for all these kids with any kind of neurological issue. It's when your brain recharges. It's when your, your neurons do a lot of detoxification, especially in your, in your deep sleep. And a lot of kids with gut issues, autism, PDD, ADHD, learning issues, texture issues, sensory issues will have sleeping problems. And so that becomes one of the things you, you obviously working on diet, but you can also focus on sleep because getting sleep working better will help everything else with your gut cortisol levels. If you don't sleep well at night, your cortisol is going to be up, which is going to affect everything we just talked about. So there's a whole lot of things um, to do, you know, the basic things like melatonin, magnesium. Some of my kids with, um, with significant neurological issues, I've had pretty good luck with, with CBD, not THC, but CBD. Um, Epsom salt baths has been really interesting how the magnesium and the warm water kind of has a soothing effect on kids. Um, there's a whole host of things you can do, but sleep is critically important for these kids. It needs to be one of the things that people focus on just like they focus on diet. And so what is the optimal amount of sleep for children? Depends on their age. So if you're like a year old, you're probably sleeping on 16, 18 hours at night. Um, if you're a high school, you're probably be, should be sleeping nine, nine ish to nine and a half ish to 10 ish. If you're in middle school, you're probably looking at 10 to 12 hours. Um, but that's actual sleep, not just time in a room. And so, you know, I've, you know, with, with our son, for example, you know, I've noticed that when I can tell when he hasn't slept well the night before, cause the behavior the next day is it's horrible. You know, and a lot of parents will like, what's going on with my young child. And it'll be like, they were up that night. They didn't sleep for some reason. And it plays into their, their eating behaviors and their um, other behaviors the following day. So sleep is super critical for all those kind of things. So you Maybe. talked a little bit about lab work yeah. and how you, you know, you act as a detective, um, you know, and that's part of the evidence that you gather. So what, what types of lab tests should parents be requesting or, you know, what's the, what are, what are the most valuable? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It really depends on the kid. So, you know, there's, there's my basic, just basic blood work in my world, which is a full thyroid panel, a full nutritional panel, looking at um, your water soluble and fat soluble vitamins, um, a mineral panel, which looks at zinc, magnesium, looking at intracellular levels of them, my fatty acid analysis, which is a blood test, looking at the fatty acids, obviously your blood count, um, and the other thing about that, I don't hear people talk about a lot as a functional medicine doctor, we interpret labs differently. You know, if your vitamin D level is 32 and that's normal, that's not really normal. Mm-hmm. You know, optimal is between 60 and 80. You know, if your blood sugar, fasting sugar comes back at 96, that's less than hundred. That's normal. Well, actually any, for every one point elevation and your fasting sugar above 83, you have a 6% increased risk of developing diabetes. So I want, I want fasting sugar mine personally in the 70s, right? So all of a sudden we also have a different lens that we look at labs at. And so some functional um, neurologists um, will actually do just basic panels, but look at, you know, 
Alkfos, for example, if that's low, you probably have a zinc deficiency. You know, um, if your GGT is elevated, that means your liver is detoxifying. It's kind of ramped up and you need to work on liver detoxification. So um, anyway, so basic panel, basic nutrients, fatty acids. And then, you know, if there's any kind of neurological issues, which there is, for, at least in my clinic with most of the kids, I'll do some kind of gut analysis, advanced stool analysis, whether it's a GI effects or CDSA or GI map or whatever the practitioner's favorite test is. They all have their, their advantages and disadvantages. There's one thing in the function world, there's no perfect test that does everything. Okay. But that, that allows you to look at the, the kid's gut function and then follow-ups. I'll usually throw in like some kind of organic acid analysis that kind of looks at how, once I get the big picture, like you're deficient in these nutrients, let me fix those. The next question I ask, do we fix you good enough? Are you deficient at the cellular level? And I'll do like an um, organic acid analysis. I know some people do that back, do that the other way. But the way I look at it, if your blood B12 level is low, of course, it's low in your cells. There's no point in doing a fancy organic acid test if the blood level is low, because I know it's going to be low. So those are kind of like the, the, my entry level tests that I'll do um, in the first one to three months. Okay. Yeah. Good information. I mean, it's so much you know, for, uh, I know if, if someone's listening to this and they're like, wait, so which one, where do I go? So a good place to start would simply, I'm assuming would simply be to consult with, even if you're not in the area with a functional medicine clinic, a functional medicine yeah. doctor, is that the best place to start? That'd be a great place to start. And you can, you can, well, you've, I'm assuming you've already seen your regular doctor to do regular labs, to do your basic comprehensive CBC, basic TSH, all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, you haven't got the answers you're looking for. Then you can take those labs and go to your functional practitioner that will then take a deeper dive. But one thing, one caveat, one thing I didn't mention, I think Amy had asked me the question before is I do cholesterol levels on all these kids. It's amazing how many of your kids with learning disabilities and autism have low cholesterol numbers. And it's really funny because the, the cardiologist wants your cholesterol to be as low as possible. And the neurologist wanted to be higher because you right. need to elevate cholesterol, right? Yes. For myelin formation. If I see a kid with a cholesterol less than 140, I know they have essential phospholipid deficiencies. I don't need to do any fancy testing. I know they need omega threes, omega sixes, and PC from the get go. You know, um, and it's really interesting how also having a different a different view of normal of typical labs can also change how you practice, and that just requires a deeper knowledge of how of the science behind what a cholesterol number actually is. You know, your body takes cholesterol and turns it into hormones. Your body takes cholesterol and turns into cortisol. Yeah. It takes cholesterol, makes myelin. You know, that's one of the reasons why one of the side effects of statins can be memory loss. Mm -hmm. That's also one of the reasons why one of the side effects of statins can be peripheral neuropathy and increased risk for diabetes because of the effect it has on your fatty acids and certain nutrients. So it's just knowing this whole breadth of knowledge and applying it to the person in front of you. This is, ooh, I'm super convicted about that one little aspect. Cause, um, my daughter, my youngest, my little girl is allergic to eggs. So she has nothing with eggs in it. She seems to have a dairy sensitivity. So no dairy. Um, we don't do any red meat or pork. And I'm sitting here thinking, I bet her cholesterol is so low. Where and I bet getting, that is affecting her brain. Where's she getting essential fatty acids from? You know, yeah, exactly. We do a lot of fish. So she does, okay. you know, get a good bit of fish and we do, we, she has a, um, we do an omega supplement, but it's not consistent because yeah. she does not like taking it. Yeah. One so thing I have, one thing I've noticed Terry with a lot of, a lot of family fish is really popular, right? But people, a lot of people will do like these bigger fish and I've had a lot of families with elevated mercury levels. Mm -hmm. 
I had one family. I was like trying to figure out stuff with them and like everybody elevated mercury. And oh, by the way, as a family thing, we do sushi three nights a week. And I was like, I didn't realize that was a thing. <laughs> I guess it's a thing. I'm, I live on the country. We, got, we, raise, we raise our own cows and we're kind of weird about that. But evidently that's a thing. And it's amazing how many people will eat sushi and tuna and these really these, these fish that have high levels of mercury. So I tend to tell people to stick with the smash fish, which are salmon, um, um, anchovies, um, um, mackerel, herring. Those are the ones that actually are smaller fish that eat smaller fish or algae that don't eat the bigger ones. Your things like shark and tuna um, and your sea bass tend to have, ele- have higher levels of mercury in them. Okay. So even sardines, like she loves, um, okay, so, so sardines, sardines, are, sardines, sardines are one of the sardines are one of the ones as well that are, um, they're the other S and smash. Okay. <laughs> so salmon awesome. and sardines. Yeah. yeah yes. absolutely, My husband yeah. walks around eating sardines out of a can all the time yeah. um, because he's such a fan of fatty acids. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, the thing to think about fatty acids, a lot of people like, well, I'll eat lots of flax or nuts or seeds. And, and an interesting tidbit is um, there's a significant number of the population have a difficulty taking ALA and converting it into EPA, which is ALA is the primary um, omega-3 that turn, it's supposed to convert in all others. Well, some people convert it about a, a lot, actually only about 10% efficiency. So if you consume like a thousand milligrams of ALA, you only get a hundred milligrams of EPA out of it. And so that's where some people like will will do more. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna stick you know 100% plant based, which I love plants. You know you know plants eat food, real food in moderation, mostly plants, right? But when you make them, especially for these fats, your primary source, you you tend to get more of these EPA and DHA deficiencies because of, and you can also suppress your arachidonic acid because of the high the high initial ALA levels. And so it can it can have some detrimental effects, which again is a reason I like to test. Don't guess, test right. Yeah, so like good. That. All right. So I want to go back to something that you've said um, about um, you say that half of all chronic disease is directly related to eating processed foods. Talk to us about processed foods. And if you could throw in a little bit of wisdom on uh, organics, non GMOs, mm-hmm. things like that. So, and this is from research from the University of Florida that half of all chronic disease in our country can be directly attributed to eating processed foods. Um, from the Harvard School of Public Health, 80% of heart disease and 70% of cancer can be prevented by diet and lifestyle alone. And so what does this mean to eat real food? You know, what is processed food? And I keep it super simple. It's like anything you have to do something for to put on a shelf in a store, right? So anything in a box, anything, if you read a list of ingredients, that's like, what is, you know, this malate, whatever thing in there, what is, you know, these chemicals in there, um, you know, real food goes bad if you don't eat it. You know, so the green leafies, fresh vegetables, um, fresh foods, you know, if you go to a grocery store, basically eating real food eliminates probably 90% of what's in the store. And that's the scary part, you know, and you look at the data, 80% of what Americans eat is processed. Yeah. So it's, it's a big, big thing. Any restaurants you eat out at, I, I stopped, my wife made me stop asking. <laughs> I go to restaurants and be like, what's up Friday? And I, I heard canola and um, soy so many times. And those people don't know. Uh, canola oil is usually deodorized with a solvent because it smells really bad. And uh, most soy is hexane extracted. So we're using petroleum p- products to extract stuff out of these fatty acids before we consume them. It's, it's, it's a bad idea in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I stopped asking, I just assume that if it's fried and I'm eating out, it's going to be a, a deodorized non-flavored oral, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And, and if you, if you cook at home a lot, you realize every natural sugar has a flavor to it. Honey has a flavor. 
maple syrup, molasses have flavors. You can't cook everything with honey, right? The same thing with your oils. You can't use olive oil on everything. You know, you use it for certain things. And that's where just real food is what's not been processed. It's things that actually will break down um, if you don't eat them. And as far as the whole GMO thing, you know, um, organic and, and, non, and non-GMO, that's my starting point. That's like the lowest common denominator. You can still have organic apples that are sprayed with petroleum, for example. Because in the in the world, the organic world for an apple, that's considered a, a a real coating. It was really funny. I was at um a organic um this is a pre-pandemic an organic um grocery store, and they had a bunch of organic apples. And they said all of our all of our apples have natural natural coatings on them, natural polish on them, right? And had the list of the things that had wax and petroleum was one of the things they listed on there. You can't make this stuff up, and so that's where you know organic. It's it's helpful, but it's it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's not my gold standard. You know, um, I think the best thing is to actually figure out where, you know, know your farmer, where is stuff coming from, you know, figuring out is, you know, with like salmon, for example, Alaskan salmon by definition has to be wild caught, you know, sticking with that, you know, typically Pacific and Atlantic salmons are, 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 are farmed to a certain degree, which means they're fed pelleted food, find out your beef. If you eat meat, you know, you know, in Virginia, where we're at, we have so many local farms. We have so many options to choose from. And then like, I, I come to love Costco in our area because they do a good job with certain things like your Alaskan salmon, like cheeses. They do a lot of, they do um, uh, French Comte and Swiss Gruyere cheeses, which are raw and um, you know, natural cheeses from Europe. And so you have to kind of learn. It's almost like we've, we've become so disassociated with our food that people don't really know where stuff comes from. And when I talk about this, they don't really, really understand what I'm talking about. And so just, you have to become educated, what you eat, where did it come from? And we'll also tell people it took me about, it took me and my wife about a year and a half to really find out where to get source food from. So it's going to take a little bit of time and effort, but it can be done. And all the patients I see in Richmond, one of the things I give them is actually a local, um, it's like a handout, like where do you source your food from locally? And it's basically where my wife and I get our food from. I give to patients to kind of help them because it's kind of hard to say eat real food and then not give anybody actually specifics. Right. So what do you say to parents who push back about cost? You know, I, I look at costs differently. You know, when you say organic food costs more, costs more, what you're saying is government subsidized food is cheap. Right. And so once you realize the reason pork is cheap and beef and eggs are, you know, $2 a dozen is because they're subsidized by the government bill. It's about $500 billion bill that subsidizes um, wheat, soy, and corn and everything associated with that. So it's not that organic food is expensive. It's that government food is cheap. And so do you want to eat government food? And my, my grandmother, you know, um, I remember her, when I was a kid growing up, she would get the big things of peanut butter from the from food stamps, the big things of cheese. And I mean, she went blind when she was 70 and she had a cholesterol in the 600s. When I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. You know, it just sounded kind of crazy, but that's, those were her food stuff she ate on a daily basis. Um, so you're getting government food. You know, if you want to, if the, I get the cost issue, so how can you make it cheaper? You know, um, you can start a little garden in your back during season, you can grow stuff. I'm, I'm, where I'm at in Virginia, you find someone who's a hunter. There, there are ways to get around it to make it, to make it more affordable. But the, the thing is always going to be also, where do you place your value? You know, I know people who routinely spend lots of money on the sporting events for the kids, camps for the kids, clothes for the kids, um, you know, doctor's bills for the kids. Did, you know, people spend lots of money for orthodontics, right? The primary mm-hmm. cause for your mouth being small is actually dietary. It's nutritional. And so once you realize one of the reasons why we have 
lots of orthodontic issues in our country and dental issues is nutritional. You know, you're basically paying it forward. You're, you're paying up on front on the front end. So you don't have things in the back end. And, and Amy, one caveat to that, we adopted all of our kids. Um, we adopted all of our kids, right? <clears throat> um, we got one when they're two, one was one and one was six months between all three of my kids. We've had zero cavities in their life. And they've been one antibiotic between all three of them. And they're 15, 14 and 11. Now that is not where they came from. That was not their birth history. Um, we had, you know, drug exposure in there as well. That was primarily after we got them diet. And so the question is, what would you be willing to pay for your kids to have no cavities and between your kids that have, you know, one antibiotic and their combined, I don't know, 30 some years of life, you know, and that's, I think that's worth something. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. I've actually never heard, um, the government subsidy analogy, mm -hmm. um, with organic food costs before. And I really like that. I mean, it's yeah. almost like, well, organic mm -hmm. food is the cost of food. No, you, Amy, you exactly. are, so you are okay. So the light, you, I have all these light bulb moments, right? <laughs> so let, let's go back, you know, um, a couple of years that was during, I forget when it was during, um, president Obama's presidency. If you remember, they had the whole, um, tax again, you know, the usual political stuff, right? Oh my gosh. End of the world kind of stuff, which happens. It seems like all the time these days, mm -hmm. but they're saying, oh my gosh, you know, this farm bill doesn't go through a, a gallon of milk will be $6. That's gonna be $5 for a dozen eggs. And the light bulb went off. That's what I pay now. Right. So basically right. the cost of, of government subsidized food will come up to the, what I'm already paying. Yes. And that's when it really, it really struck home. Like, wow, it's, it's used. People prefer government subsidized food over ungovernment subsidized food. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and sadly, um, our, our base pay economic structure, minimum wage. I mean, that, that is what our American lives have been structured yeah. around is that people are supposed to exist on government yeah. subsidized food to get minimum wage, to be able to survive. I mean, it's, that's yeah. just the sad state of things there. There has to be a willingness to sacrifice. We yeah. each have to be able, if, if we want a healthier lifestyle, if we want our kids mm. to be healthier, if we want our kids to behave better, be happier, have a more fulfilling future, there will be a sacrifice. Yes. And I think that's just the truth. That's, that, that's none of us want to hear it or admit it. It's going to be hard. Like you said, two to three weeks of detoxing from sugar that it's, it is not going to be easy. You're not going to do the dietary changes with your kid and your family for three days and feel better. You're going to feel worse. Yeah. You're not going to feel better for three weeks, you know, give it a month and then see how things are. Mm. And then you got to stick with the sacrifice. And are we willing to do that? And that's a hard, a hard question. Every individual, everyone listening, you've got to ask yourself, how much do I want this? And what am I willing to sacrifice? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just remember as a kid growing up, I always hated having a garden in the back. I hated picking green beans and canning them. I hated having, we had like a little, we grew up in Harrisonburg, which is a city in Virginia. And we had like, you know, a couple apple trees in our yard and then had a little grapevine. I just really hated dealing with that stuff. But in, in hindsight, I remember, I remember we, we actually couldn't afford to only buy food from the grocery store. when I was a kid growing up, we go, my dad would go hunting and we'd have venison stuff for like three or four months. We go get half a cow and fill our freezer with half a cow for half the year. Like, I really hated all the work as a kid growing up that went into that stuff. But now I realize like we, we couldn't afford 
to only get our food from the grocery store. And so it's my, my, and my dad was from West Virginia. He grew up on a farm. So he kind of knew how to provide for his family with us having a, a garden in the backyard. And it's kind of interesting how it's affected me. I now live on a little farm outside of Richmond and we raise our own cows and have our own little garden that gets overgrown every year with weeds. Cause I can't have time to take care of it. But you know, it's, it's like making part of your family's culture, part of your, your story, a part of your traditions. Do you, you know, for millennia communities revolve around food. And we've actually, no one sits down and eats meals together anymore. Everybody's eating on the run, you know, fast food. These things are anti-historical. You know, how do we get back to some more, you know, more historical eating of real food? And that's what I think it comes down to. And it's going to cause a sacrifice. You're not going to be able to have your kids in a different event every night, seven days of the week for 365 days a year. It's just where are people's values. And that's where you have to determine, you know, and it's hard, it's hard, it's hard when you're competing with everybody else to have, you know, the most amazing family life. It's just got to do what's right for your family and you, you take care of your people. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, we feel that way about functional medicine as well. So, I mean, it's worth the extra because you can't mm-hmm. put a price on health, you know, yes. as well. And so yeah. well, the thing about functional medicine is, well, I had another aha moment. I went to see my podiatrist because I had a foot issue <clears throat> and he saw me for 15 minutes and I got a bill for $250 for that 15 minute thing. And I was like, that's like a thousand dollars an hour that he's getting. I'm like, if I got half of that, I wouldn't have to charge extra for functional medicine. And it's interesting. Our system, our medical system pays for procedures, not for, not for cognitive work. And we, that's one of the issues in our system right now is that, you know, you, you, I get 12 minutes with you in in the visit for a regular primary care. Um, You see a specialist, they do a procedure. That's where the money in our system is. And our system just is not geared towards, it's geared towards acute care, not chronic care. And in a world where, you know, infectious diseases and acute appendicitis and pneumonias kill most of people. Yes. Acute care is super important, but now in a world where cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, cancer are the biggest killers. We have to re re engineer our, our, our delivery, our healthcare delivery system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Things have changed. Yeah. 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 So we need to take a quick break and let Terry read a word from our sponsor learning RX. And when we come back, Um, Dr. Hartman, we want you to talk to us a little bit about what your response has been. Um, Like talk to us a little bit about your podcast, your online courses, you know, what you're doing. Okay. Are you concerned about your child's reading or spelling performance? Are you worried your child's reading curriculum isn't thorough enough? Well, most learning struggles aren't the results of poor curriculum or instruction, They're typically caused by having cognitive skills that need to be strengthened. Skills like auditory processing, memory, and processing speed. Learning RX one-on-one brain training programs are designed to target and strengthen the skills that we rely on for reading, spelling, writing, and learning. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. In fact, we've worked with more than 100,000 children and adults who wanted to think and perform better. They'd like to help get your child on the path to a brighter and more confident future. Give LearningRx a call at 866-BRAIN-01 or visit learningrx.com. That's learningrx.com. And we're back talking to Dr. Aaron Hartman about functional medicine and a functional medicine approach to chronic health issues, complex medical issues, and overall um, health. <laughs> okay, so uh, Dr. Hartman, tell us what you're doing. 
So what am I doing right now? So I'm kind of expanding some of um, the educational things I'm doing. You know, my website, which is richmondfunctionalmedicine.com is my landing page for um, the, for um, the blogs I'm doing, um, informational things I'm doing. I have a reading list there. I, I truly believe if, if, if the original statistic I said, half of all chronic disease can be attributed to eating processed foods, you know, 80% of heart disease, 70% of cancer can be prevented, right? If I really believe these, then education becomes super critical for anybody's health. And so I'm trying to make my website like a, a site where you can get reading lists, um, blogs, podcasts, a whole host of educational materials, my social media as well. I'm putting like just different layers, right, of educating people. Um, we even have a community, uh, online community that has um, health coaches. Um, we have myself doing courses in there question and answer sessions. We're just trying to help people because the reality is most people don't have access to any like you have to a, um, a functional medicine person. So how can I get that information to people and where, wherever they're at, whatever level they're at, uh, meet them wherever they're at so they can start the journey. Right. And so that's kind of what I've, what I'm, what I've created and I'm continuing to refine it. We're actually redoing our website and we'll be relaunching that here probably the next uh, week or two. Um, and if people want more information about that, richmondfunctionalmedicine.com is the website. Okay. You have a free resource that is wonderful. I already went to your website and signed up for it. Tell us a little bit about your free resource and how people can access that. So that, that resource, which again, might be linked below. If not, you can go to my website and download it. It's a, um, the roadmap to resilience. It's an ebook, which is based on our, our first course in our community, which is it's basically foundations of functional medicine, but I named it roadmap to resilience. And it kind of walks through diet, lifestyle, exercise, sleep, and how, you, how do you start introducing changes in your life? How do you start walking through those basic um, supplementation recommendations on how to boost your nutrition? And then for people who want someone to start helping them, they can get access through the community through, to health coaches to help help them more individualize that um, as well. But that the, I think the starting point is that the Roadmap to Resilience is just that ebook to start getting people, how can I start working on my diet, stress, sleep, um, relationships, all these basic foundational things. Um, and so that's what that ebook is. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it feels I actually like did this- download that. And so for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with functional medicine yet, um, I highly encourage you to, to sign up for that. It is free. I will put the link in the show notes. Oh, um, great. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, it's a great resource because I feel like, um, this podcast has been a little bit like uh, drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. <laughs> We're all drowning. It's so good. It's so much, but it's like, oh my goodness, wait a minute. Where do I go back and start from the beginning? And that I love that resource It's a really, really great resource to help us just turn off the, turn off the, the fountain there, you know, the fire hose <clears throat> and just be able to take some sips. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Hartman, is there anything uh, you'd like to leave our listeners with? I mean, I think the biggest thing is that change can happen and it's, it's at the most fundamental, fundamental level, it's basic, you know, gut stress and sleep. I I call these my triangle of health. These are the foundational things you got to do right consistently for your health. And then all the cool, fancy stuff layers on top of that. And that's where a diet is huge. Gut health is a part of that stress, sleep. Again, these are the most foundational things that can radically change the trajectory of anybody's health, no matter their age. Excellent message. So we are out of time and need to wrap up, but this has been a phenomenal conversation. And we would like to thank our guest today, Dr. Aaron Hartman, for sharing your story, all of this uh, great information, uh, lighting a fire under our feet, uh, under our feet um, (laughs) about getting healthy. 
Um, if you would like more information about Dr. Hartman's work, you can visit richmondfunctionalmedicine.com. You can find him on Instagram and Facebook at RVA Integrative, and we will put all of his social media handles, uh, links to your free gift, um, the ebook he was talking about. We'll put all of that in the show notes. So thank you so much for listening today. If you liked our show, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd rather watch us, we are on YouTube. Um, Please follow us on social media at The Brainy Moms. So look, until next time, we know you're busy moms and we're busy moms. So we're out. See ya. Take care.